Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. All right, so uh, we started last week on Jesus being um, a better high priest. And the, and the truth is, is we haven't even scratched the surface on what this looks like. The author spends the next four chapters talking about Jesus being the high priest. And, and if we're honest, this is one of those topics as Gentiles that we don't necessarily fully get or even understand the significance of we're like okay, yeah great Jesus is high priest that doesn't really have much significance on me because I didn't go yesterday to offer a sacrifice in the temple or give it to my high priest and he make a sacrifice I didn't have to operate in that system of the old testament as the jew would and so for jesus to come along now and become our high priest there's really not it's hard for us or it can be hard for us to understand that significance and the importance but the truth is is without a high priest all of this is for nothing we absolutely need a high priest. And that would have been the first question that a Jew would have asked a Christian or any Jew who was wanting to know about Christianity was, are your sins forgiven? If you don't have a high priest, who is making penance for you? Who is bringing the, the sacrifice? Because it's sin that takes us away from God. It's sin that destroys us. It's sin that breaks us. It's sin that is that rebellious nature. And so I need to take my lamb or my grain and I need to offer it to the priest. And he offers it to God on my behalf so that I am forgiven. And without that, I can't stand before God as holy. So who is your high priest? And for us... It's very tempting for us to say, okay, we, we understand, we, we need a high priest. You know, Jesus was a great sacrifice. Jesus was a great prophet. Jesus was a great apostle. Jesus was the son of God. So let's just kind of add to his resume and make him a high priest, right? Let's just kind of put high priesthood on his name. Jesus is our high priest. But the problem with that is if Jesus is not truly qualified to be high priest, then we cannot make him high priest. Like we cannot say Jesus is our high priest if he indeed is not qualified to be high priest. And so the author that this morning, his goal is to show that Jesus is indeed qualified to become high priest, that he meets the qualifications, the requirements that were that God put in place. Because we can't just rechange the rules and say, yeah, Jesus doesn't really meet the qualifications, but he's God, right? And so he can change up the game. He can change the rules up. No, God is the same God as yesterday, as he is today, as he is tomorrow. And so in order for Jesus to be the substance of the shadow, basically in order for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament, Testament, he has to qualify to become high priest. He has to meet the requirements, and that's the goal of the author of Hebrews. So if you do have your Bible still open, um, we're going to turn back there, Hebrews chapter 5. 
and it is going to be verse 1 through, we're just going to sit at 1 and through 4 and learn the qualifications. So it says this, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, um, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron. So the first qualification, there are three qualifications in this section. The first qualification is he must be chosen by God from amongst men. Okay? He has to be human. The second qualification is he has to be able to sympathize with his people. And the third qualification is he has to make a sacrifice for his people. So those are the three qualifications that the author is drawing out here. So the first qualification is Jesus must be chosen from amongst men in order to become high priest. See, the high priest had to be man. The high priest could not be an angel. He could not be any spiritual being. The high priest could not even be God in his full glory. God cannot be high priest. He has to be chosen from amongst men. Why? Because the high priest is actually reflecting man. The high priest is going on behalf of God to, to be a reflect, not to be a reflection, to be representative of mankind, to bring offering on their behalf, to make the sacrifices, to make the penance, to bring it on behalf of man. An angel can't do that. An angel can't reflect or represent mankind because he's not man. God cannot represent man because he's not man. He has to be chosen from amongst men. But the second qualification is he has to be chosen by God. Okay? He has to be taken from amongst men, but chosen by God. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus is going to be high priest, he cannot stand there and say, guys, I'm the son of God. I pick me. Like, like, I'm the son of God. I pick me to be high priest. I, I choose myself. I glorify myself. No, what we see is that in order for him to be high priest, it, only God can choose. Only God can choose him. I can't elect him. He can't elect themselves. And here's another one. It's not a democracy either. Like, so all of us can stand in one circle and say, we choose Jesus to be our high priest. That's We, we pick him. It means nothing. All right? I don't care how many people choose Jesus to be high priest. He is not elected by pre, by, uh, as a high priest by the people. He's chosen by God. Remember when God chose Aaron, he said, go get your sons and the sons, and you guys are going to be the priesthood, the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, your ancestors, your descendants. This is where the priestly line is going to come from. And you remember when um, Cor Corin, Dothan, and Abram, they, they gathered together and they tried to make a coup? And they said, nah, I think that Aaron should not be chosen to be, who's, who's Aaron to be high priest? I think we should pick who high priest is. I think we should have a deciding factor. We should have a democracy, right? Israel should be a democracy. We should choose who our high priest is. You remember what God did? He killed them all. He opened up the ground. All right, he opened the ground up. I mean, talk about creative, all right? God's a creative God. He, he has many ways of killing us, all right? <laughs> he opens the ground up, they all die. And he just says, this is serious. You don't get to choose. 
You don't get to stand up in front of me and say, who are you to choose? I get to choose. No, God chooses the high priest from amongst men. But the second qualification was the high priest has to sympathize with men. So in order for Jesus to be high priest, he has to be able to sympathize. You see, here's the problem with God being high priest. God is omniscient, right? Which means that God is all-knowing. God knows all things, but God is not all-feeling. And what I mean by that is that God doesn't know what it feels like to be limited. God doesn't know what it feels like to be tempted, God doesn't know what it feels like to have a flesh that is wanting to disobey him. So God doesn't understand fully the feelings, the emotions. He's not able to sympathize with his creation. But see, the high priest, it's like this. I can build this this music stand, right? I could build it, and I could be all-knowing of the music. I can know that, man, this knob, this, this raises it up and down. This one does something. I'm not sure. But it has these rivets that hold this together. I can know the weight capacity. I can know how high it goes. I can know even the materials that would make, and, and if I put a fire next to it, how hot the fire has to be to melt it. I can learn everything about this music stand, all the information, all-knowing of music stand, except for one thing. I will never know what it's like to be this music stand. Just won't. I'll never know what it feels like to have some guy's hands grabbing all over me as he preaches a sermon. I won't know. I thank God for that. <laughs> that was one of those moments. Can't take back. Um, <laughs> it was not in my notes. Um, but it says that the high priest has to be able to be sympathetic, has to sympathize, so he has to know. He has to feel what we feel. He has to experience the highs and lows of mankind so that he can sympathize. Why? It says so he can deal gently with those who go astray or are ignorant and go astray. The deal gently, it's this word, uh, metriopatheo. Metriopatheo. It literally means that he is to treat with mildness and moderation. So the high priest can't be a guy or a person of extremes which means that he can't be overly sympathetic to the point where he loses his, his clouds, his judgment, and is able to actually discern and walk in, 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 um, in a discerning manner. But he also can't be too apathetic where he stands and says, sinner, not sinner, sinner, not sinner. How could you do that? You're a sinner. He, he, has, he can't be too apathetic. He can't be too sympathetic. He's got to be right there dealing gently with his people. And what does it say? He deals gently with those who are ignorant and misguided. Deals gently with those who are ignorant and led astray. What is he talking about? He's talking about Numbers 15 when it says this. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he, that he may be forgiven. So those who sin ignorantly, meaning that they, they are chasing after Yahweh, they're, they're walking in, in the, the camp of Israel, but they may walk in unintentional sin because of their flesh. They don't know for sure. Then also the led astray aspect of their, they're chasing after Yahweh, but, but maybe their flesh gets the best of them in a season or whatever happens and they fall into this temptation. But the high priest was to make sacrifices or atone to sympathize because the high priest understands, I'm a sinner too. I get it, bro. 
I get what you're going through, and so you're able to sympathize, but I'm not going to let that cloud my judgment. There is still, it's still sin, and we need to have a penance. We still need to make atonement for that sin. I understand. But here's, listen to this. This is very important. Is nowhere in Scripture, in the entire Old Testament, hear this, nowhere do we ever see a sacrifice for the one who goes and intentionally, deliberately, unrepentantly sins. There's no sacrifice for this person. In fact, in the Old Testament, what does it say? Numbers chapter 15. But the person who does, not, uh, who, who does anything defiantly, whether it's a native or an alien, that one is a blasphemer against the Lord, and the person shall be cut off from amongst the people. The Bible says that there's no place where if you are chasing, if, you're, if you are in the camp of Israel, the title of, of Jew, of Israelite, but you go and intentionally sin, you're deliberately walking in sin, you're deliberately defiantly saying, I, I want, you know, I get it, I get what God says, but I'm going to intentionally, defiantly, willfully walk in my sin, and then tomorrow I'm going to bring my little, my little lamb and say, you know, and give it to the priest, and I'm forgiven. You know, and then I tell the priest, I'll see you tomorrow, bro, I'm going tonight, you know. And that person who's deliberately, the Bible says, there ain't no sacrifice for you. The high priest's job was never to make sacrifice for you. His job was to have sympathy and to have diligently with those who are faithfully chasing after Yahweh and unintentionally and uh, uh, maybe get carried off in their flesh at times. But their job was to make sacrifices for them, those who put their faith in God over those who put their faith in themselves and needed a sheep to get, a get out of hell free sheep. You know, and that was that was the heart of the Old Testament. But he had that sympathy. The high priest, the third characteristic, the third qualifier for the high priest was he had to make sacrifices. That was his main job, right? You you bring an offering, you bring a, a grain or lamb or whatever to the high priest, and he offers that on behalf of you. Now, here's the difference of the Old and New Testament. When the high priest would make a sacrifice for you. He only could, that, that lamb or that grain or whatever it may be, that was only for your sin, to atone for that sin that you committed. So, so if you kill somebody accidentally, you go before the high priest, and there's other things that, that, that are involved, but you go before the high priest and you offer a lamb, you offer the goat, and that just makes atonement for that. And here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't change your nature. It doesn't change your heart. That lamb cannot do any of that. That lamb can only make atonement the way God has ordained it. That can make atonement for that sin. Now, here's the problem. Because it doesn't mess with your nature, it doesn't change your heart, it doesn't give you any kind of affections or transforms you in any kind of way, you are visiting the priest daily. I mean, it, it becomes, you guys know each other by name, all right? You guys are homeboys because... If your nature is not changed, this sacrifice day after day after day after day after day after day, you can't get over it. There's going to be sin in your life. And so the, the sacrifice was, did what God ordained it to do, which was be a shadow of things to come, but it could not change your nature. And so now we have three requirements. We have chosen by God from amongst men, sympathetic, and offer sacrifice. So if Jesus is going to be all, if Jesus is going to be our high priest, this has to be, he has to meet these requirements. He can't just meet one. 
And then we'll say, yeah, we'll just give him a pass. He could still be high priest. No, he has to meet the requirements. So let's read what the author says. He says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he also said in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the, the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so what does this say? That Jesus, the author is showing that Jesus, the Messiah, was to be pulled, was actually to be chosen by God as prophesied in the Old Testament. He goes to Psalms 2, verse 7, when it says that he, this is my, my son, today I've begotten him. This reminds us of what Jesus, God tells Jesus after baptism. This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So what we see is that God has chosen Jesus. Even though Jesus was God, hear this. Even though Jesus was God, even though all things were created by him and through him, even though he was a sustainer of all things, he is the sustainer of all things, even though Revelation says he has the authority and the title, the deed of this earth, so he has the authority to do whatever he wants, Jesus still did not stand and say, I am in all authority, choose to be high priest. I choose to honor myself. In fact, what does he say in, in John? He says this, Jesus answered, this time the Jewish leaders, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. So God elevates Jesus. God honors Jesus. God chooses Jesus. And it says that he chose Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. This is Psalms 10, 110, verse 4. The order of Melchizedek. Now, who's Melchizedek? We're not going to go a lot into Melchizedek because we're going to spend chapter 7 in Melchizedek, but I will say this. Melchizedek is an Old Testament priest slash king. And what's interesting about Melchizedek, he lived during the time of Abraham, and Melchizedek, the Bible says that he was God's priest. Hebrews chapter 7 says he's God's priest, and his priesthood is forever, unending, What's also interesting about Melchizedek is that he comes from the ancient city of Salem, or Salem, which is modern-day Jerusalem. He was God's king of the city of David before it became the city of David. He was God's priest where the high priest would stand every day making sacrifice. He was God's priest before it was the priest. And so God says he is in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is very important because if Jesus is going to be high priest, he's got to obey. He's got to actually qualify. One of the biggest arguments is Jesus can't be high priest because he's not a Levite. He's, a, he's from the tribe of Judah. In order to be high priest, you've got to be of the tribe of Levi. You cannot be of the tribe of Judah and be high priest. He's the tribe of Judah because he's king. He's an Elitum David. He cannot be the priest. So we got a dilemma here. If Jesus truly is high priest, we got some issues to work out because he's not of the Levitical priesthood. And so God says, well, that's a good thing because I've got a superior priesthood. See, Levi's priesthood, Aaron's priesthood, that was temporary. Started with Moses, ended in 70 AD. Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. It's unending. So Jesus is the high priest in the order of a greater priesthood than that of Aaron. 
So Jesus meets the qualifications of being elected by God. The second qualification, he has to be chosen from amongst men, and he has to be sympathetic. It says, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, because he was a son, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. So Jesus in his flesh. I want you to remember this. Remember, God could not be a high priest because he cannot be sympathetic. And so in order for Jesus, who all of eternity passed, all of eternity passed was God. But he, he actually, the Bible says he humbled himself and took on the form of flesh. So in order for Jesus, and remember, it wasn't Jesus for all of eternity. Remember this. It was the Word, right? The third, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus inherited, the Word inherited the name Jesus just as he inherited obedience. He learned obedience. He learned suffering. He learned these things and inherited these things in the flesh. But for all of eternity, he was the Word. And so as the Word, second person of Trinity, he did not know sympathy because he did not know what it is like to be his creation. And so Jesus did not count equality with God to be equal with God, a thing to be grasped. He said, I'm leaving this. I'm humbling myself to take the form of flesh to take it on so I can experience the pain, experience the hurt, experience the, the, the fears, experience the fleshly pulls. I want to know. Guys, this should blow your mind. Because as a believer, I would be, and I'm one of those, I, I don't have a hard time with God being God on his throne. I don't have a hard time with that. I mean, I, and a lot of people say, we, we, I, we love God and we, we worship God because of what he did and what he's done. And I'm just the kind of simple person that I'm like, I don't think that there's any stipulations on why I have to worship God. Like, God could be the worst God in the world, the heinous God. He could slaughter, I mean, he could slaughter his children. He could hate his, his people, but he's still God, right? He still created us. He still molded this. He's still in charge. He can still zap you. He's, we worship him. He's God. He is God. And so I have no problem with that idea. And so the fact that my God knows me, he knows, he knows the, how I operate. He knows my cells. He knows how my hair grows. He knows how, my, how I, I move. He knows, he knows every cell in my body. The fact that my God is omniscient, he knows everything. I'm okay with that. Let's stop there. Let's just stop there. God knows everything about us. He knows all that this music stand is made. He knows everything about the music stand. But God said, I don't want to just know all there is about the music stand. I want to know the music stand. I don't want to just know about you and watch you and know how you operate and know how you move and know how it creates you. I want to know you. I want to know what it feels like to, to grieve a loved one so I can walk with you in the grief. I want to know what it feels like to have your flesh pull against me and want something else but have to try to be obedient in that. I want to know what it feels like to, to actually have this pain in the flesh. I want to know you so I can walk with you. I can have intimacy with you. I can have sympathy with what you're struggling through so I can give you strength through it. I want to know you. I don't want to just know about you. That's an amazing, amazing truth that I pray does not become common to us. 
And here's the thing, what we're tempted to do with Jesus' humanity is say, well, he is God, right? So he really never experienced all that we experienced because he was still God. So when Jesus fasted for 40 days, it's not the same for me, you know? If I fasted for 40 days, it'd be worse because he was God, right? Jesus had this like third stomach or something. He's like a cow. I don't... He's God. He didn't hurt as bad. Or when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't that bad. Or when Lazarus died, it, you know, it says he wept. But did he really weep? I mean, because if, if my loved one dies, I weep a little more than Jesus wept. Because listen, to diminish the human nature and the human experience of Jesus Christ while he was on this earth is to disqualify him as your high priest. If you diminish his experience and all that he went through and experienced in order to sympathize with you, you are disqualifying him to, as high priest. When Jesus fasted for 40 days, it probably sucked. I mean, that's, my, that, that's in my translation. It hurt. When he died on the cross, it hurt, and I would even dare say he hurt and, and, and had it worse than we do. It was actually more painful because when you suffer, you suffer guilty. You're a sinner. Even if you suffer an injustice, so somebody does some sort of injustice to you and you did nothing wrong, you still are a sinner who has contributed to the sins of this world, who contributed to that sin against you. Jesus never had one sin to throw in the pile of sins that contributed to all the things that he experienced. He suffered as an innocent man. Jesus gained sympathy. I love what it says. It says that he... It says that, uh, what does it say? In the season or the time of his flesh, you know, he, he made these prayers and supplications. He experienced the pain, but it also says that he learned obedience. This is a very interesting truth because in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he never had to know what obedience was because he was perfectly one with the Father and the Spirit. They were in love. They were united. They were perfectly one. They, there was no Jesus like, I don't know if I want to do that today. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to follow you guys. You guys go your own way. I'm going to go this way. There was just this perfect oneness in all, for all of eternity through the Trinity. And so when Jesus, when he humbled himself and he became flesh, he had to learn what it is to have a, something in him or on him that is going to try to pull him away from, from obedience to the Father. He actually has now a flesh that wants to self-preserve above obedience to God. He has a flesh that desires the world, that needs food, that, needs, that wants pride, that wants arrogance. He has a flesh that is tempting now. And so he had to learn obedience in the face of temptation, and he did it perfectly. Y'all, this is mind-blowing when you realize that there was nothing different in the flesh that, from between us and Jesus. We think that Jesus came on this earth, and he was like this God robot, right? Like He's like, God, obey, God, obey, God, obey. I'm going to obey. You can't, I can't make me fall. Jesus wasn't this obedient robot that he was not tempted to sin. He had temptations. And the fact that he resisted every single one of them and did it perfectly should blow us away. That's what's so powerful about Jesus' life and death was he did it perfectly in the same manner that we live. 
He learned obedience. He became flesh. He can sympathize with us. But then finally, he must be a sacrifice. But having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is, um, this is what's amazing about Jesus. So we've been talking a lot about this throughout this whole sermon. But So Jesus lived perfect, which therefore as a high priest, the duties of the high priest was to offer sacrifice. But because the high priest was sinful, he could not stand in the presence of God until he made a sacrifice for himself first and then bring a sacrifice. Jesus never had to do that. And so Jesus was always qualified as a, as a person, as a perfect person person to stand in the holy of holies before God because he had no sins upon him. And so now we have a high priest who does not need sacrifice for himself, but rather than offering this lamb that doesn't represent us, it's a lamb that is just it just takes away that sin, rather than offering a lamb, Jesus took it upon himself to not only offer the perfect sacrifice, but it was delivered to God by the perfect high priest. This is your high priest. It says that in him, the sacrifice was made once and for all, not day in, not day out, to atone for your sins, to, to make wash to clean your sins. But here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't just take care of your sins. It takes care of the sinner. It changes our nature, y'all. He makes us clean. We are clothed in the righteousness of God, and therefore we can stand before God as purified, as clean. But listen to what it says. This is important. Sam stopped on it, and he, he, he brought it to light. It says that he's a perfect sacrifice, the author of salvation for who? Those who obey him. Now, we talked about this last week. The lordship of Jesus, especially now, I want to sit on this for a second because especially in light of Jesus' role as a high priest, remember, Old Testament high priest, they never offered a sacrifice for anybody, anybody who walked in deliberate, uh, d- deliberate un- uh, intentional, defiant sin. They never offered a sacrifice for that. So that's the Old Testament high priest. Jesus is the shadow or the substance of the shadow of the Old Testament high priest. And so now we have Jesus on this side of the cross as our high priest. And it says that is his sacrifice, his offering are for those who obey him. Now hear this. Listen to this. This is in no way saying that you have to work to get the sacrifice. That you have to actually be good enough to to receive the blood of Jesus as the sacrifice. You don't have to earn your way for Jesus to be your high priest. That's not the gospel. That's what separates the gospel from Muhammad, from Brigham Young, from Buddha, from Hinduism, from New Age. That's what separates it. It is not works or by your efforts to reach nirvana to reach perfection to reach goodness it is by the grace of jesus christ it is by his work on the cross that's the gospel but 
Romans 1, I think it's Romans 1, 5, Paul says it's obedience of faith. Obedience of faith? What does that mean? Well, we got to understand what faith is. You see, we have a, a weird definition of faith. We think faith and belief are the same right? Faith and belief are the same. Like, I believe in Jesus. Now, they're, they're intertwined. They, they, they overlap, but I believe in Jesus. I, I have a belief in who he is. I believe in him. I, I put my belief in Jesus. But the problem is the demons in hell believe Jesus exists. The demons in hell believe Jesus was put on a cross. The, belie- the demons in hell believe that God is one, Trinity one. The demons know that Jesus died for your sins. The demons believe that Jesus was the great high priest. The demons believe the great, the demons have better theology than most of us, if not all of us. They believe it all, but they don't have the faith. Because what is faith? Hebrews chapter 11 says faith is the, is, is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen, the substance of things hoped for. In other words, faith is assurance in something hoped for. Faith is assurance oftentimes in things that the world would say is unreal or unseen. In the Christian world, faith is assurance in the work of Jesus Christ as your high priest. Faith is assurance in the good, good father, the nature of our good, good father. Faith is assurance in the eternality of our, our, our salvation, the security of our salvation. Faith is assurance in who Jesus is. It's assurance, but it says also it's evidence of things not seen. Listen, the person of faith lives his beliefs. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, your life is committed to what your mind and spirit are convicted to be true. In other words, your life right now, your actions, your thoughts, what you do, your life is a manifestation of where your assurance is, period. Our life is a manifestation, is the evidence, is the fruit of where you put your assurance, and I think Christians are very good at deceiving themselves, and especially during this election, y'all. Like I'm just saying, I, I work out, I work at the gym, and so I talk to a lot of people in the real world, not y'all fake Christians who come in the church. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I talk to Christians outside in the weird, in the real world, where they don't see me as Pastor David; they see me as gym rat. Okay, um, and I'm thinking. We have a really good way of saying, God, no matter what happens, God's on his throne. I believe he's on his throne, y'all. Wait, my my candidate didn't win. What happened, God? Where are you at? I'm like, come on, y'all. Like, I've talked to so many Christians who are depressed, who are anxious, who are worried, who are fearful. I got to go stock up on guns because Jesus ain't big enough. Like, what are you doing? The evidence of our life and the evidence, the evidence of our assurance is our life. And so if you can claim all day that Jesus is king, God's on his throne, that we could claim that all day long, that that's where our assurance lies. But it's the evidence of our life that tells us that. And you can lie. You can deceive. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of where your assurance lies. 
And so what, what is Jesus saying here? One of the greatest arguments, you see that there's a reason why the Old Testament person in Israel was not, had a, did not have a sacrifice and offering for him because when he would go off intentionally sinning, walking in that intentional deliberate sin, he was saying, my, my assurance ain't God. It's not, in, it's not in the hope of God. It's not in God's throne, God's kingdom, God's lordship. It's not in his blessings. And I know that he said this is about sin and this is wicked and it's going to curse things. All, I, my assurance isn't in that. My assurance is I'm going to want to do what I want to do and I'll bring a lamb. I'll bring a sheep. That's it. There's no faith. There's no assurance in God and Yahweh as being Lord. And so the same is true as here. One of the biggest arguments that I have heard and that people get so frustrated within the church is this theology of once saved, always saved. And, and I'm not going to tell you where I land on this anymore. I just get sick of fighting over it. But I will say this. It's a fun, fun theology because people will stand up and say... Are you telling me that you can say a prayer and, and read a scripture and, and, and you know, say a prayer and read scriptures, make this commitment in church and get baptized, take a little bath in the, in the toilet? You know, you're telling me that, I don't know why I said toilet, that this person can now go off the rest of their life and live however they want and they're still saved? You're telling me that that's not salvation? No, what I'm telling you is there's no salvation. There's no, there is no offering for him. Not because Jesus hasn't accomplished it. Not because the work is not already done. Not because Jesus isn't a great high priest. There's no sacrifice for him because he's not put his assurance or she has not put her assurance in the work of Jesus. Like I said a hundred times, salvation isn't a prayer. It isn't even baptism. Look, I could, I could, come here. I could start squaring all of y'all. We'll go Methodist, all right? Sprinkling. Which is just as valid, y'all. Some of y'all get so upset about the dunking. Man, it's symbolic, all right? It's what the Holy Spirit, if that's your, your point of salvation is water, sprinkle, or dunking, chances are neither of them work for you. All right? Um, <laughs> salvation. What was I talking about? Um, Once saved, always saved. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says that when I become a a Christian, that I said a prayer, I get to walk in unrepentant sin. I get to walk in in defiant and willful sin. But I'll tell you this, there is something in the Bible that says otherwise. Hebrews says this, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, listen, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, people will say that means you could fall out of salvation, slip out of salvation, turn from salvation. I don't believe that that's what that means. And we're going to talk about that when it gets there. What I do believe that means, because the knowledge of salvation, the knowledge of the gospel, we've talked about, Jesus talks about the knowledge being proclaimed, the word, the seed being planted in the wrong soils and it never producing fruit. And so I believe that it's not talking about you became a believer and then just continued in willful sin. I'm talking about you heard the gospel, you heard Jesus' love for you, you heard the redeeming power of the cross, and then you continued to walk in your flesh, your sins, your willful disobedience, there is no sacrifice for you. Our great high priest, just as the Old Testament high priest, does not offer that sacrifice. 
But it's not because of his lack and his inability. It's because of our assurance. Where does our assurance lie? And before you get all high and mighty pharisaical on me, he doesn't offer sacrifice for the religious spirit either. The Pharisees. The ones who come into church and say, I'm a Christian. I'm better than those wicked heathens. I'm a Christian. You want to know how I know I'm a Christian? I go to church. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I don't cuss on Sundays. I don't. <laughs> That's my definition of Christian. I, I do all these things. I'm saved because of my obedience. I'm saved because of my works. I'm better than everybody else. You know, one of the things my professor in college told me to do, and it changed my life. I was like 24, 25, and he asked me this question. He said, David, if you got rid of your personal relationship with Jesus, how would your life look? And he said, no, you could have church. You could have worship. You could have Sunday mornings. You could have all that stuff. I'm talking about getting rid of your prayer time, getting rid of your Bible reading time, getting rid of your intimacy, your, your on your face with Jesus time, that love relation, the dependency of Jesus. You get rid of all of that. You keep your church. How would your life look any different? And for some of us in this room, we're like, man, my life will be drastically different. I was on the street. I was broken. I was prideful. I was arrogant. I was this. And Jesus changed me, and it's my relationship with him that I'm dependent on. But then for some of us, I looked at my life at that point, and I'm like, look, my goal in my life was not to be an alcoholic. So I looked at my life. I didn't drink as far as I didn't get get wasted. But I don't think I would have been wasted if I wasn't a Christian. It never appealed to me, right? It just wasn't appealing to me. I, I had drunk, but getting sloshed every night was miserable. I just made fun of everybody who did and, and painted on their face. Um, <laughs> doing drugs, I did drugs, but I really stopped doing drugs before I really became a Christian. It wasn't attractive to me. Cussing. I never was a person that just like wanted to be. In fact, I hear those people that just cuss like sailors constantly. And I'm like, man, kind of not ignorant, you know. I just didn't want to be one of those. A womanizer. Look, I grew up with three sisters that I was terrified of. <laughs> they would have kicked my butt if I took, just mistreated women. I was raised better than that. And so all of these characteristics aren't because I'm a, I'm a Christian I'm just a, technically a good person. Except, man, Jeremiah could tell you about yesterday. I was hammering for Dan- Daniel's house, and I hit my thumb, and I almost said something. Holy Spirit stopped it. Jeremiah's like, no, nah, not pastor. Um, but it was when I started depending on, see, I looked at my life at that point, and I realized if I got rid of my personal relationship with Jesus, how much of my life would actually look different? And then now I look at my life, and if I got rid of my personal relationship with Jesus, my time, my prayers, my, my dependency on him, guys, I, I changed me. Jesus has transformed me. 
And this religious spirit in the South where everybody goes to church and everybody has this and everybody does this, that needs to be put to death. You go to church and look good is not Christianity. There's no sacrifice for that. Because your assurance is still in you and what you can accomplish and what you can do and make sure you look good. You see, Jesus is... my. Tangent, my biggest fear is that we're going to be knocking at the end and saying, Jesus, let me in. I obeyed you. I did this for you. I, 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 I performed miracles for you. I went to church. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't sleep around. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you, you practicers of lawlessness. You didn't, yeah, you didn't sleep on your wife, but what was going on through your mind when I heard you, when I saw, saw you in church? Yeah, you didn't go around and get wasted, but your heart, when your mind was on wicked things, yeah, you did Bible studies and you did these things, but your heart wasn't on me. You just did these religious things. I didn't know you. And there wasn't a sacrifice for that. There's not a sacrifice for religion. There's not a sacrifice for willful disobedience. There's a sacrifice for those who put their assurance in the great high priest. Who put their assurance in him. So my prayer for this morning is that Jesus being the sacrifice, Jesus being the high priest begins to change us, begins to transform us. I don't even know how to end this, y'all. I got nothing. Because my heart is, is I just, I, I want us to, to be a people so badly that are so in love with Jesus. I, I want us to be a people that find the treasure in him. I want us to be a people that, that are daily meditating with him, reading the word, that we stop this American Christianity BS. This American gospel garbage that we get to just come to church and then go out in this world and be whatever and whoever we want to be. That as long as we're religious and man, the, the world is sick of Pharisees in the church. And the world is sick of Christians who operate in their flesh and just hurt people and harm people in the name of Jesus. My prayer is it starts here. That we become a people who just realize that, that our assurance has to be in Jesus, so our dependency is in Jesus. So every day we're on our face for Jesus, that we're praying to him, that we're reading to him, that we're worshiping him, that we're just so in love with the treasure that we have found in the field and we sold everything to get him. He's our great high priest. And here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to do communion again this morning. I know that, that sermon went on a little long, but... Um, I'm going to be up here, and I want to. And if you need to pray, the, the altar's open. But I'm going to be up here as well. If you need to pray with me, um, and Don will be up here. And so, if you need to pray with either of us, then, then we're available. If if today is the day that you're done, we're done with it. You're done with the American version of Christianity or this is all new to you and this is what you want to choose a high priest and you want to be found guiltless and sinless before your holy creator who knows all about you and has an intimacy of you. Today's the day. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, we praise you.
Jesus. Jesus. Pray that these words sink into our hearts, sink into our lives. Father, let your truth change the lives in this room. Father, we don't want a high priest that could make atonement for one sin at a time. We need the great high priest who could change us, change our nature. Father, let this people, let us be a people who put our assurance in you completely. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen.